Welcome to The Gold Exchange with Keith Wiener, where we untangle market and policy complexity using timeless economic principles. For show notes and archives, go to goldexchangepodcast.com. And now, on to today's episode. Hello, everyone, and welcome again to The Gold Exchange Podcast. I'm John Flaherty, and I'm here with Keith Wiener, founder and CEO of Monetary Metals. In our last podcast, we discussed the field of economics and a few reasons why it has often been labeled an inferior science. Today, we hope to drill down a little deeper into one important metric of the health of an economy, namely GDP. We'll also see where and how this metric falls short and if uh, better alternatives exist. So Keith, gross domestic product is defined in Investopedia as the total monetary and market value of all the finished goods and services produced within a country's borders in a specific time period. As a broad measure of overall domestic production, it functions as a comprehensive scorecard of a given country's economic health. Thoughts on that definition, Keith? Well, scorecard of a country's health. You know, there's a certain analogy to saying that patient goes to the doctor, doctor says, get on the scale. And then we take the patient's weight as a comprehensive scorecard of the patient's health, where higher, higher, of course, being treated is better. Is that really what you want to do? Problem with GDP is that it includes both government consumption, so everything the government buys and consumes, and also all of the uh, consumers who don't produce, who are given uh, handouts by the government, is also whatever they spend and consume is also included in GDP. And both of those are the opposite of healthy. Those things should be subtracted, if anything, and not added. So basically, in my definition, GDP equals production plus destruction. And they've got the sign in front of destruction wrong. So, so why is it that we pay so much attention to this metric? Well, I think the central planners have uh, two reasons for touting these uh, types of macroeconomic uh, uh, numbers. One is as propaganda, uh, and, and the other is as uh, a means of, of central planning of how they target, you know, whatever uh, price or, or rate that they want to manipulate. They, they purport to be looking at something in order to, to know what they're doing. So let's take the first one uh, first. You know, what the central planners are doing is harmful to us as citizens, and particularly the productive citizens. The unproductive ones, the ones that are being given a handout, first of all, don't have any complaints because they're getting something for free. And secondly, they don't really care anyway because they're not really thinking about it. They just, they're just happy because as long as the gravy train is, is rolling along, you know, they're fine. But everyone else needs to be sold the way the evil works. And yes, I will use the word evil to describe the central planners. Evil is always obsessively, incessantly, chronically seeking the support of the good. It's always trying to sell itself. The lie must always be reinforced and doubled down and propagandized and and evangelized over and over and over and over and over again. Because as long as there's a free market for ideas, then you know people can discover you know the truth. So the central planners have to tell you how good they're doing. And as long as they can get GDP to grow, and as long as they can get, I guess most importantly, as long as they can get people to believe that GDP is a measure of the economy, then all they have to do is make the GDP number go up and then they can say, see, look at all this growth we've given you. And everybody accepts it. And then secondly, 
it gives the, uh, uh, the central planners, uh, it gives them a metric to study and purport to follow it while they do whatever it is they're doing, let's say to the interest rate, which is the price of borrowing money. They, you know, they're, 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 they're playing at following math. They're pretending at, well, we have rules, you see, and this is all very objective. This is all very scientific. We're calculating. Because Mises said, you need prices in order to be able to plan and has to take individual actors based on prices that they're seeing in the market. Well, this is the central planning surrogate. Instead of looking at prices as indicators of a zillion and one things going on in the economy, they're looking at a macro aggregate you know, GDP number. And I think the ultimate way to see this is suppose the government locks the economy down due to the COVID virus. I know that's crazy. I know that's a reach. They would never do that, of course, but suppose they did. And then GDP takes a huge, it falls off a cliff. So suppose they turn around then and they start handing out free money to all sorts of different groups, whether you're big airlines or small businesses or, or welfare recipients or newly unemployed. They just start writing trillions and trillions and trillions of dollars worth of free checks and doling it out. And suppose people were to go and spend those checks. And the net result is that $1 more is being spent than was being spent previously when all, the, all those people were working and the economy was producing that much more. According to GDP, you had a dollar of growth. But GDP is not differentiating between growth of what? Of bloat of government, of the parasitic government, which is sapping the lifeblood of fewer and fewer remaining producers. You're not distinguishing between that versus increasing production. So uh, according to the, uh, the propaganda statistic, you know, everything looks good, it grew. So Keith, we can actually have growth in the midst of government just printing and doling out all of that money? Well, the question is, is that really growth or is that an artifact of a bad measure of growth? So I'd like to, I'd like to point to the fallacy of the broken window, which was proposed by Bastiat with his unique wit. And he, and he likes to make the case in favor of the fallacy and then debunk it. So he's talking about, isn't there growth? If somebody, you know, throws a rock through the window with a tailor, I think it's a tailor, you know, breaks the window, and now the tailor has to go buy, you know, new windows, so the glazier gets paid, and blah, 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 blah. Isn't this, you know, adding to the economy? Of course, you know, he points out that, well, that means that the tailor doesn't have as much money, you know, as a shopkeeper, because he doesn't have enough money to go to the tailor as he had planned to do and go buy a suit. And so the tailor is deprived of whatever goes to the glazier, and so, of course, it doesn't make any sense. All we're doing is we're substituting somebody buying something new and increasing their uh, uh, value attained in this world. Uh, and then all we're doing is forcing them to replace things they already thought they had as we break them. Today, of course, with the ability to just add debt, the shopkeeper would go to the glazier and the tailor. He would just borrow a bit more. And so we just add to the debt in order to fuel this consumption. Uh, it is absolutely true today that if you break a window, it has the GDP. And so is that a recommendation in favor of breaking windows? No. It's a damning indictment of GDP as an utterly fallacious, not useless measure, but less than useless. Like if you get shot in the heart, putting a Band-Aid on it is less than useless because not only doesn't it fix the bullet wound in your heart, but actually it convinces you that nothing needs fixing, that you've actually fixed the problem. And so it's actually worse than useless because of that.
So that's what GVP does. So we're actually in a situation where we're like praying for natural disasters to to juice our juice this metric. I think it was Krugman after before 9-11, after 9-11, he was talking about the benefit of a massive war and, and bombs raining down and destroying our cities. He was talking about the economic benefit of that. So, oh, no, no I'm sorry. He, he, uh, that's right. He was talking about what if we encounter an alien race, you know, UFOs fly to the earth and then are bombing us and we end up in a war with, with the aliens. So, yes, there are some people that actually believe that. <laughs> So you'd mentioned interest rates earlier, and we all know that the Fed is in the business of suppressing interest rates and have been for, for decades. How does this interest rate suppression affect GDP? Well, it, it's, always, uh, it's always boosting it because every time the interest rate drops down, that's a fresh additional incentive to every business and potentially consumers too, particularly when manufacturers you know, offer creative financing terms. You can buy a car and they say 0% for 72 months or 84 months. Then that might be an inducement to buy the car. But particularly to businesses, suppose you are a manager at a hamburger chain and you're considering, you know, you always have whatever, 10 or 100, I don't know how many at the time they're looking at, locations that they're considering for opening a new store. And they always have to go through their, their numbers. They build a spreadsheet where they estimate how many Cars are driving past that intersection, you know, and they, they figure out how much business they're going to get. And then they have to figure out their cost of interest because they borrow money to, to open the store. So that interest expense is a pretty significant input in, into, their, into their spreadsheet. And then let's say, they, let's say there's a, a, you know, 10 locations that are marginal. Well, it just doesn't really work. The interest expense is just, you know, or they, they wouldn't say the interest expense. They would say the overall business case isn't there to open these restaurants at this time. Now, if the traffic were to increase, they would open the restaurant, uh, or if the interest rate were to drop. Now you plug in new lower cost of borrowing money, and suddenly it makes sense. So then you, you, know, you, you buy the real estate, and you hire a whole bunch of construction guys to build your store, and then you buy a whole bunch of equipment. You, know, you buy the fryers and the grills and the you know, freezer cases and the um, microwave ovens and all the stuff that you need to operate a, a burger joint. And then you hire a whole bunch of people that are now drawing salaries in order to staff this burger place, all of which uh, made possible because the interest rate down, went down. And the other thing that happens when the interest rate goes down is the price of all the assets goes up because you know an asset has a value based on the cash flow that's going to generate in the future. That cash flow that you're going to generate in the future has to be discounted to the present using basically the interest rate. So if, there's, if you're going to make a dollar a year from today and the interest rate is 10%, then that dollar is worth 90 cents. But if you cut the interest rate in half, the dollar is worth 95 cents. So over long-term assets, every halving of the interest rate doubles the, the value of it. And so every time assets goes up, people feel richer and they, they spend more. Economists call this the wealth effect. Which is why we can't rely on the stock market or price of real estate as other alternative measures of, of the health of the economy either. That's a trap we often fall into, right? Yeah, they're just measuring the same thing in a different way. And if you have three, three or four different numbers that you think are different metrics, but actually they all depend on the same variable, then you're fooling yourself into thinking that you have multiple metrics. You don't. Right. So now that we've pulled the curtain back a little bit behind um, this comprehensive scorecard, in quotes there, for, for the economic health of a given country. What is it that we should be paying attention to for a realistic picture of the health of an economy? 
So one thing I like to look at is I think it encompasses, instead of encompassing so much of what the central planners like to tout about their central planning, instead, this actually encompasses much more of what, of what people should be looking at, and that is marginal productivity of debt. So instead of looking at people, a lot of people try to look at debt to GDP and say, well, okay, when it gets to this percentage, that's like a magic line. And then everything somehow suddenly goes bad at this magic line. Anybody that, that proposes to you that there's a magic number, you should immediately be skeptical because it doesn't work that way, you know, in the real world. But marginal productivity of debt is simply saying not how much uh, GDP do we have and how much debt do we have and trying to relate those two. There's not really enough useful information there in order to make that relationship. Marginal productivity debt is saying for each new dollar of debt that we add, freshly borrowed in 2020, how much new GDP does that newly borrowed debt create? So, you know, in, in all the examples I've given previously, somebody borrows uh, in order to build a hamburger restaurant, let's say they borrow a million dollars. Well, that's a million dollars added to GDP. Because now you're building the brick and mortars, you're hiring all these people. Whether you're buying the bricks or whether you're buying the laborers of the bricklayers, you are spending what you borrow uh, and adding to GDP. But a funny thing happens when you borrow for unproductive purposes. That is borrowing not to build a business or build an asset that will generate an income, but rather you're borrowing in order to, I don't know, dole out welfare uh, in a welfare state or you're borrowing for other financial engineering purposes. And what happens is you begin to accumulate baggage of debt that isn't productive debt. It didn't create a productive asset, but the debt is still there. And so marginal productivity of debt is essentially measuring a ratio of how much debt that's being created is adding to GDP and how much debt is just simply an anchor dragging the whole thing back. And so um, what, you, what you should expect, what you would like to find if things were going good, is marginal productivity of debt should be well above one. That is, each freshly, newly borrowed dollar should add more than a dollar of GDP. I mean, in theory, right, if, if, if you borrow a million dollars to open that hamburger restaurant, that hamburger restaurant is going to generate profits and revenues and add to GDP, for that matter, in perpetuity. But the debt was only incurred once and eventually it's paid off. So the more historical good investments you have, GDP should be positive, debt, excuse me, marginal productivity of debt should be, uh, should be positive. Unfortunately, what we find is going back to at least 1950, which is the oldest data that I've been able to find, uh, marginal productivity of debt has been a falling number. That is, we're tending to get less and less GDP for each freshly, newly borrowed dollar. And that's a, a, a scary, you know, even if you're not an economist, even if you're not a PhD, you should look at that and say, that's scary. And what happens when it hits zero? What happens when it goes negative? And, and those are questions that, alas, uh, mainstream economists are not bothering to ask. Yes, probably questions for another episode. Keith, this has been a great discussion. Appreciate your insights today. I'd like to thank you and our audience for joining us on the Gold Exchange. We hope you've enjoyed this episode. Go to goldexchangepodcast.com to learn how you can earn a yield on gold paid in gold.